Thanks for all you're doing. All right, I want to invite you to turn to uh, the Gospel of John, John 12, uh, chapter, chapter 12, verse 20 through 50. And this morning, we're going to talk about the foundations of the discipleship. This is a really fun passage uh, of, of Scripture. And the reason why is because this is the end of John's story about Jesus' ministry before he, he's set to go to the cross. John 1, 1 through 12 is the story of his, of his ministry. And now from John 13 onward, he is preparing to head toward the cross. And so John has this strategy in this passage, and his strategy is, I want people to follow Jesus. And so this morning, um, he talks about some foundations for basic discipleship. Now, I want to take you back to the summer of 1995, to this sign. You've seen this sign if you've driven from Bartlesville down to Dallas. This sign is in Atoka. In the summer of 1995, we were moving to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and we didn't know uh, the, the route just all that well. We had been up several times. And I got to this sign here, and I reasoned this way. Washington Boulevard is U.S. 75. So if I'm going to get to Washington Boulevard, I better turn north on 75 and 1,000 feet. But it didn't look right to me. Didn't remember doing that before. Didn't know if that was the right way to do it. I'm thinking, oh, okay, turn left. And I turned left. And when I turned left, I was going to places like Ada, Tupelo, not toward Bartlesville. And I felt like I was going into the middle of proverbial nowhere. And I remember, I came from Dallas, big, bustling, busy Dallas. I'm thinking, this does not look like the road to Bartlesville. I'd taken the wrong path. And the wrong path was bring, bringing me to a different destination, and I was bringing my kids with me, two of my four kids with me. The other two had already moved. And so that was a minor, minor, minor decision in the grand scheme of things. But to me, it, it illustrates a reality that all of us are called upon to make choices in our lives. Some of these choices are, are big choices, some are small choices, but the big choices are choices like, what college am I going to go to? Am I going to go to college or not? It's a big choice. That choice is going to take you toward a destination. Another choice is the choice about, that's a bride and a groom there, uh, a choice about, who do I marry? Will I get married? It's a big choice. That choice brings you toward a destination. Another choice is, what kind of job do I have? Do I have a job that meets an immediate need? Do I choose a job that leads toward a career? What do I do? It's a choice. That choice leads you toward a destination. Uh, who do I vote for? That's a big question these days, right? It's a big, big controversial question these days, but it's a decision. How many kids do I have? Do I have kids? Do I have a ton of kids? All these are big choices, and these choices lead you to a destination, and they lead you to a destiny. Now, what John wants to do in John chapter 12 is John wants to tell us about the biggest choice of all. And the biggest choice of all is, will we decide to follow Jesus? 
This is not a choice about will I become a Christian or will I remain a non-Christian? That's part of the choice. But the choice more in its essence is do I follow Him now and for the rest of my life? Or do I say, no, not quite yet. I may wait a little while before. I may, I may just sort of put that on the back burner. And what John is going to tell us through Jesus and through this story is that these are big decisions that we are called upon to make. And so what we're going to look at is first is the path, is the path of discipleship, and then we're going to look at the way of non-discipleship, and then we'll look at how to make the choice, and I'll close with some takeaways. But we, we start with Jesus presenting the pathway of discipleship. And this is really fascinating. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, uh, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Philip and Andrew went and they told Jesus. Now, let me, let me just give you a little bit of insight into, into this, this story. This story tells us that John is wrapping up his history of Jesus' life. Because at the very beginning, Jesus seeks Philip, and at the very end of this story, Greeks go through Philip to seek Jesus. And it's as if John is saying it's gone full circle. You know, Jesus came and he sought his disciples. Now the world is seeking Jesus through his disciples. So in other words, John is saying, hey, it's happening. It's working. The Jesus movement is multiplying. The Jesus movement is becoming what it was intended to be. Of course, you know, years from this incident, the gospel is going to be catapulted away from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and then it's going to go into the Arabian Peninsula, and it's going to go into the Middle East, and it's going to go west into Europe. It's going to jump the Atlantic to the Americas. But it begins right here, where the Greeks coming through the disciples to seek after Jesus. Now, who exactly are these Greeks? I, I mentioned this a little, bit, a little bit last week. Are they people like from Athens? Are they people from Sparta? Are they people from Corinth? Are they like people from the Peloponnesian Peninsula who, who are fluent in Greek? Well, they are fluent in Greek, but these are people from Galilee. You, you remember that Galilee was dotted with all these cities, and some cities were Jewish cities, but some cities were Greek cities. And there were 10 Greek cities called the Decapolis, Deca, 10, Polis, city. And the Decapolis cities were thoroughly Greek cities. They had Greek-style temples. They had Greek-style theaters. They had Greek-style architecture. They were thoroughly, we would say, Hellenized, Greekized cities. And uh, if you were a rebellious Jewish boy, like the guy in the parable of the prodigal son, like the prodigal son, you could cash out your bank account, take your big wad of cash, and walk 10 miles to a Decapolis city, and you could have the time of your life. You know how we say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? What happened in the Decapolis cities 
stayed in the capital cities. You could have your little fun and go back to your Jewish lifestyle. Well, these are the Greeks who are coming to Jesus, Greeks from the Decapolis cities, and Jesus loved these folks. Think about the, 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 miracle, the, the things he did there. He fed the 4,000 in a Decapolis area, Decapolis city. He cast demons into pigs in a Decapolis city. He regularly traveled through the Decapolis city called Beit Shan, was there quite a bit. And the more he went through these cities, the more the Greek people listened to him and said, this is a guy that we want to follow. He was a guy who could live in the Jewish world, he could live in the Gentile world because he goes to all the world. And these are the people who are coming to Philip. And when they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Remember, every word in John is important. What they're, what they're saying is, Philip, come on, we want to encounter Jesus. We want to experience Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We want to be committed to Jesus. What do we have to do in order to have a relationship with Jesus? That's the thrust of what they're, what they're saying. Now, as soon as Jesus hears this, he realizes that, that this tectonic shift has taken place in his ministry. Like, from here on out, he realizes it is time for me to go to the cross. When he realizes that the world is coming to him as represented by the Greeks from Decapolis cities, he realizes, okay, it's time. It's time for me to do my great work of going to the cross. Now, just one bit of insight before we move on. I love it that Jesus went to Galilee because Galilee was a microcosm of the entire world. There were many, many cities in, in Galilee, Jewish cities, Gentile Greek cities. And when Jesus says he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles, what this is saying is that Jesus is going into the world because it was a microcosm of the entire world. What Jesus, what Jesus is doing is something that we all should do. He calls us into the world. He calls us to, to go into the world of our corporate offices or the world of our small business or the world of our university or the world of our, of our school, and he calls us to represent him in those places. What Jesus did in Galilee is exactly what we're supposed to be doing in the world. We represent the risen Christ no matter where we are. That's why your job is spiritual. Your job is every bit as spiritual as what I do on the staff at Grace Community Church. God has sent you into that area in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so what's Jesus going to do now that the Greeks are coming to him? What Jesus is going to do is teach them about basic discipleship. Now, um, <clears throat> what Jesus is going to do in teaching about discipleship is give them three marks of discipleship. But I have to tell you, uh, he didn't, doesn't do this like the Sermon on the Mount, where you have three big chapters of teaching about discipleship. He doesn't do that. What he does is, is John gives us an abbreviated, almost outline of, John gives us an outline of the sermon, like the outline you have in your GCC update is very abbreviated. 
And John almost gives us a very abbreviated outline of what Jesus teaches. Here's Mark number one. Mark number one is that if you're going to follow Christ, you are going to develop an identity based upon the cross. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he uses this illustration of grains of wheat to illustrate his body. And what he's, what he's saying is my, my body is like that grain of wheat. Uh, my body is like that, that kernel. That kernel has got to die and be placed into the ground. You know, wheat is a pretty complex thing. looks like a little, little tiny kernel, pretty complex thing. It's got the bran layer, the endosperm, got the germ. That thing goes into the ground, and the miracle of implantation takes place. And what Jesus is saying is, my, my, I'm going to die. My body is going to die on the cross. It's going to be placed in the grave. And the miracle of resurrection is going to take place. And from that seed is going to come great multiplication. Like We're talking like fields and fields and fields of multiplication of wheat. You know, my life will die, but there's going to be a multiplication of belief around the world. What's beginning to happen with the Greeks, but he's got to die and go to the cross in order for that to take place. Now, for your life, when you think about your life, to follow Jesus, your identity must be based on the cross. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I want you to think about the four things Jesus did on the cross. Four things. I'm going to give you four big terms. These are four things Jesus did on the cross. Number one, substitution. That means Jesus took our place, what we deserved, Jesus, Jesus got. What we, what we merited in terms of punishment, Jesus received. He was our stand-in, our substitute, our proxy. Well, that, that means I owe a, an amazing debt of gratitude to the one who took my place on the cross. Redemption means you paid the price. You know, if you go into a discount jewelry store and you buy a diamond ring, you're paying a certain price. If you go into a high-end jewelry store on Fifth Avenue in New York, you're going to pay a certain price. If you go into a really high-end jewelry store in London, you're going to pay a certain price. The price Jesus paid was the highest price possible because he gives his own life. Our identity is formed on the fact that I have been purchased by Jesus in his shed blood on the cross. Propitiation is another big term. What, what it means is that Jesus' death satisf satisfied, fully satisfied the Father. So you know, you know those times when you, when you say to yourself, I blew it. I sinned, God must be angry at me. You ever say that to yourself? I blew it, I sinned, God must be angry at me. I know a lot of people do say that because they tell me they say that. Well, that is never true. God is never angry at you. Never, not once, after you come to Christ, because God already directed His anger on account of your sins toward His Son, and therefore God is never angry at you. Never. God always treats you 
with grace because his wrath was propitiated. The father was satisfied. And then reconciliation means that he established a friendship. So you now live in a full friendship with God. God says, you're my friend. God would say to you, you are his friend. You are his friend. And what, what, is, what is a friend, what's the quality that a friend has? Freedom of communication. Freedom of disclosure about personal things. God is your friend. And as your friend, he wants to empower you. Well, your identity is based upon those four things. Because the cross, the cross is where those four things took place. To follow Jesus means that you are consciously building your identity on what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Now, those are not the only things Jesus did, but those are the four core things that Jesus did when he died on the cross. Followers of Christ set their identity based upon what Jesus did on the cross. And really, that defines what love is. It defines what love is. I know that I am loved because these four things took place on the cross. But it also means that the cross has to be the source of my identity every day. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross yearly. No, it didn't say that. Monthly. Nope. Weekly. Nope. Daily and follow me. It's a constant recognition that my identity has been shaped and formed by what Jesus did on the cross. Now, Jesus identifies a second mark of discipleship, and that is we give up the independent right to rule my own life. John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, When I say give up the independent right to rule your life, I'm not talking about the basic stewardship of your life. You are called to lead yourself well. You're called to steward well the life that God has given to you. But what discipleship is, is it's giving up the right to independently control my life apart from Jesus. You see this in a good number of other passages. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Another example, Luke 14, 26, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Don't stumble on that word hate there, because what he's, what he's talking about is making a powerful choice against a second best option in favor of a first best option. That's what he means there by hate. I make a radical choice away from a second best place option and toward a first best place option. But the idea is that I'm giving up the independent right to rule my life. Now, there's a good number of people who make the choice to not let, to, to, they make the choice to let self be king. And you know how that works, where you say, I'm going to do whatever I want to with my mind. I'll do whatever I want to with my body. I'll do whatever I want to in my relationships with people. I'll do whatever I want to with my money, my financial possessions, my material possessions, and so on. And what Jesus is saying, you can do that, but that's not going to turn out too well for you. You may find that you lose the very thing you were hoping to gain. 
Conversely, there are those who make the choice to not let self be king. And those people who do that say, Lord, I'm giving up the independent right to rule my life, and I'm asking you to be my leader, to be my Lord, to direct me as I live my life. I'm going to lead myself well. I'm going to steward well the life you've given me. But I'm dependent upon your leadership as I do those things that you have commanded me to do. And so they, they make the choice that Jesus is Lord of their body, their mind, their soul, their dreams, their aspirations. He's Lord of their morals. He's Lord of their ethics, their relationships, their sexuality. And when you make the choice to give up the independent right to self-rule, uh, real life comes, comes your way. And there's this amazing result is that you, you experience the life, the life of, of God. So now Jesus gives us a third mark of discipleship. And that is, we, this is a really cool one, is that we learn to receive honor from the Father. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, now get this, how cool is this? The Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. One mark of discipleship means that you are willing to receive honor from the Father. Now, what this verse assumes is it assumes that Jesus is, is alive, he's risen from the dead, he is active in the world, he's active in North Africa, he's active in Europe, he's active in the United States, he's active in Oklahoma, he's active in Bartlesville, he's active in your neighborhood, he's active in your house. That's what it assumes. It assumes that the risen Christ is active. And if you are serving Jesus in the place where you have chosen to reside, in your home, in this city, in this state, in this nation, what Jesus says is that you will receive honor from the Father. Well, what, what is that all about? Like, what kind of honor could that be? Well, I, I want you to think about Grace Community Church, for instance. You know, we planted Grace Community Church in 1995, wanted to be led by Jesus as we did various things in grace. We never could have envisioned that we would be instrumental in planting 200 churches in central Cuba and launch a school that regularly trains church planners. We never would have envisioned that. But, but what's happened? We received honor from the Father because the Father allowed us to do things that were big and significant. When we started Celebrate Recovery, we never realized the number of lives that would be changed through Celebrate Recovery, the number of marriages that would be saved, but that's happened. Well, what took place is that we received honor as a church from the Father. Um, I had an interesting experience in, in mid-June. I started the week with three very big prayers, like really, really big prayers. These were, like, these were like desperate prayers, prayers that had me on my knees, and I was saying, all right, Lord, I am, I'm praying that you would do this. Then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday took place, and as Monday progressed, uh, I had a person call me saying that God had led them to pray for the exact thing that I had been praying for that morning, big, desperate, on-my-knees prayer. So when I heard that, 
what did I say to myself? Did I say, oh, cool, coincidence, awesome? No, no. If I'm thinking about my life as a disciple, I'm saying, Father, you have honored me by having somebody else pray the exact same prayer for me that I was praying for me. Thank you for honoring me by having that person call me and telling me that the burden that I lifted up to you, you you gave somebody else that same burden to pray for me about. That was awesome. I felt honored by the Father. Disciples encounter that a lot. Another person called the next day to encourage me, and their encouragement was so stunningly specific that I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, like, I prayed to the Lord about this, this, this thing, and this person is encouraging me in this very area. Day later, another person dropped by and handed me something that was a precise answer to another prayer that I'd been praying. All right, three things happened within the span of three days that were specific to the prayers that I've been praying. This is what happens to people who follow Christ. They often feel as if the Father is honoring them through answered prayer in a supernatural way. That's really amazing when that kind of thing happens. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's really cool when that happens. And followers of Christ encounter that a lot. Now, this raises the question, given those, given those marks of discipleship and given some of those demands, what would motivate a person to be a disciple? Like, like what, would, what would motivate a person to step over the line and say, all right, I'm in, I totally want to do this? Well, rather than reading the next 10 verses, let me tell you the story of these verses. Jesus, at this point, becomes troubled because the cross is ghastly, it's horrible, it is painful. He becomes troubled. Um, and he knows the physical suffering is going to be, is going to be like, that's bad, but the, but the spiritual suffering is going to be even, even worse. So what's he going to do? Is he going to say, Father, save me from this? No, he's not going to do that. What he says is, Father, will you please glorify your name? Even though he's going to go to the cross, even though he's going to suffer, Father, will you please glorify your name? The Father's glory is paramount. What happens next is really cool. You know what happens next? A big, booming voice comes from beyond the clouds. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I just imagine you were there, and you were listening to Jesus. Oops. And you were one of the Greeks. You were listening to Jesus as one of the Greeks. And you're, you're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden, what? What was that? Like, what was that thing I just heard? I've got a grandson who has been living in Africa, and he came back to the, to the U.S., and he was hearing some fireworks. And he was just terrified about the fireworks because there's a big boom of the fireworks, you know, and the, and the pop of the Roman candle and the sizzle of some of these other fireworks. And some of the people who were listening were, were like afraid, terrified of what they were, they, they were, the big booming voice. Why does God choose to speak at that particular time? Well, remember who his audience is. His audience are who? Greeks. And what do the Greeks get to hear in that moment? Something 
supernatural. Hey, Jupiter couldn't have done that. Apollo couldn't have done that. Hermes couldn't have done that. Bacchus couldn't have done that. This is the supernatural God who is committed to glorifying His Son. So, so why, why uh, be a disciple? Well, one benefit is that you are going to encounter the supernatural. That does not mean every time you pray, you pray that you are instantly aware of the answer to your prayer. What, I, what happened to me a couple of weeks ago was kind of a unique thing, right? A unique thing. I've prayed other prayers for 25 years, no answer. And then in year 25, I get an answer. So prayer is, uh, is an amazing, wonderful thing, but it's not Aladdin's lamp, all right? But one of the things that happens, when, one of the reasons why you would follow Christ is that you're going to increasingly encounter the presence of the supernatural God. That's a motivation. That's one of the reasons why, why we follow Him. Jesus gives us another example. Uh, you're going to encounter a transformed identity, a transformed identity. Um, Jesus uh, interjects this reason uh, about transformed identity because He talks about being a son or daughter of the light. Verse, verse 35, he talks about being the light, the true light. He tells then the Greeks, come to the light. Jesus says to them, if you do believe in the light, you'll become a son of the light. So what he's saying to the Greeks is, come to the light. I'm the light. Become a son of the light. Well, what that means is I'm going to have a transformed identity. My identity is not going to be what it used to be. It's going to be different. So one of the reasons why I become a follower of Jesus is because I encounter the supernatural, and increasingly I encounter a transformed identity. So let me sum this up. The path of discipleship is founded on the cross. It's focused on a real relationship with God, and it's filled with the honor from the Father. Therefore, I encounter the supernatural, and I encounter a transformed identity. That is a compelling reason why these Greeks should become followers of Christ. It's a compelling reason why we, who are followers of Christ, should excel still more in our daily active commitment uh, to Him. Okay, now we're going to do a U-turn. And we're going to do a U-turn. We talked about the path of discipleship. Now we talked about the path of non-discipleship. And Jesus does something that, that is just really, really interesting here. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself. He hid himself. Josh talked about this with a great message a couple of weeks ago. Great message. Jesus hid himself. Well, what, what does it mean that he, that, he, that he hid himself? You know, we think about hiding. We think that's not a good thing. Hiding is not a good thing. Hiding is not a good thing at all. When we think about images of hiding, let me tell you what I, th I think about. I think about Star Trek and The Lord of the Rings. You remember, if you were a Star Trek fan, which I was not really, but Romulan ships had the ability to cloak themselves so that they couldn't be seen. Uh, Bilbo and Frodo Baggins had the ring, and they could put the ring on. As soon as they put the ring on, they disappeared. Did something like that happen? I don't know. I wish we knew exactly how Jesus hid himself. But the point is, is that he, he did hide. But it's so ironic because the Greeks 
wanted to see Jesus, so he reveals the way of discipleship. The Jewish leaders don't want to see Jesus, so he cloaks himself. That's, that's just weird. The Greeks want to see Jesus. He manifests himself. The Jews don't want to see Jesus, so he hides himself. That's, on the face of it, that seems, that seems different than what we would expect. So let me just for a second talk about the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. Um, God often hides himself. Uh, sometimes it's a partial hiding, sometimes it's a nearly complete hiding, but God often hides himself. Remember when Jesus was on the, on the road to Emmaus with the two, two of the disciples? You know, walking along, and it's Jesus, it's resurrected Jesus, but the two disciples don't recognize that it is Jesus. Why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't you say, guys, it's me, I'm back. Come on, let's walk together to Emmaus. Why not just do that? Because by hiding himself just a little bit, it forces the disciples to say, do I really want Jesus or don't I? We see a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, where, where Paul says, you know, Seeing spiritual things is like looking into a mirror dimly. We see some things. We don't, we don't see everything. Why does God sometimes remain hidden? Well, here's my conviction. God does this to allow us to confront ourselves. It's a test. Not an unloving test, but a very loving test. And the test is this. When God seems to be hidden, will I ramp up desire to seek Him, because God loves to be sought. When God seems hidden, will I ramp up my desire and want to be seen Him, or will I think, good, because I don't want to seek Him at all. So sometimes God allows Himself to be hidden for the purpose of us asking ourselves, how much do I want to know Him? Over the years, I've had a lot of people say to me, Man, God seems so far away right now. The heavens seem closed to me. I don't feel God. I pray and search for answers, but I can't find Him. They're lamenting this as a, as a bad thing. And it's painful, no doubt, in the process. But this really and truly is a sign of God's love. Because in that space of hiddenness, my heart, my true heart is revealed. Because if my true heart says, God, I will seek you until I find you. I will seek you with all my heart. That's a good thing. If I say to myself, I am so glad you're gone. (laughs) Because I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to do. And with you not around, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do that stuff. So we see how this works in John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe. Now notice what it says next, therefore they could not believe. Now see, here's how, here's how the hiddenness works. They, weren't, they didn't believe, so then God hides himself to the place where the true heart gets revealed, and now they can't believe. Again, I know that sounds a little bit strange, so let me illustrate it for you this way. Here are two knots, a slip knot and a bowline. Imagine that I am mooring a 43-foot catamaran to a dock, if I moor it with a slip knot, 
one result is going to take place. If I moor it with a bowline, another result is going to take place. If I put pressure on the bowline, the bowline will get progressively tighter and tighter and tighter, and, and it will harden up as a knot. If you've ever worked with knots, you know what a hardened up knot is like. It's hard to get it un- unraveled. But if you use a slip knot, it, it, opens, it opens right up. So if God's hiddenness comes and I, and I harden up, I know the state of my heart. If God's hiddenness comes and I open up and I free up my heart, I know the state of my heart. And so the way of non-discipleship is the way of addressing the hiddenness of God in your life. What do I really want? Do I really want Him or do I want a substitute for him. And there's a ton of people who, when God appears to be hidden, they say, wow, I can do what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. I just want to pause for a second and ask you that question. Where are you right now? Where are you right now? On your, on your seeking meter, is it a 10, 7, 2, 1, 0? If you're encountering the hiddenness of God, in an area of your life, because sometimes God makes Himself hidden in an area, like you've got a decision to make in this area, His will in this area seems hidden. And so, God's hiddenness in this area makes you seek Him in this very area. Where are you in that area? Again, like 10, 9, 5, 2, 1. It's really important to assess the state of your heart, because we can choose to seek. Otherwise, we wouldn't be commanded to seek. You know, if you seek me, God says you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. We can seek even in hiddenness, but we have to make that choice to seek. The way of non-discipleship is the way of confronting our heart when God's hiddenness becomes evident. Do I want Him or do I not want Him? How do you make the choice? Well, notice what happens next. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. We have some who are stepping out of darkness into light, and Jesus is inviting these secret believers to fully commit to that place of discipleship. All right, so how do you make the choice? How do you step out? into the right path, okay? Well, John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. So choosing the best way comes down to your desire to see. This passage is like bounded by references to sight. It starts with seeing in verse 21. It ends with seeing in verse 44. In verse 21, the Greeks say, we want to see Jesus. In verse 44, Jesus says, come and see me. It all comes down to your desires. What do you desire? And I know for me, I'm always having to confront my desires. All right, what do I really desire? And I have a line that I always say. And and the line that I say is, Lord Jesus, I want you. I want you most. I want you first. I want you best. I want, I want you. So John is intentionally talking about seeing 
how we go about seeing and increasing our desire to see. It's a call for secret believers now at this point to come out of the darkness and into the light. So, some takeaways. How do we come out of darkness into the light? Well, first of all, is to, I think it's important to confront our anxiety. Stop living in fear. Stop fearing people. These people who are the secret believers were afraid. The Greeks weren't afraid. The Greeks came. They were fine with coming. But the Jewish secret believers were afraid of coming into the light. These were people who received Christ, but they were afraid. Like, if I step out into the light, what's going to happen? We know who some of the secret believers were. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they were afraid of coming into the light because they were afraid of what the consequences would be to their reputation. Um, We know they ultimately did come into the light, but I suspect they lost friends. They lost some of their authority. They had consequences. But if you are going to follow Christ, you've got to address your anxiety and say, you know what, I'm going to follow him. I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. Here's the second takeaway. Find a mentor to disciple you. Find a mentor to disciple you. You know, we have more and more people in our church who I would say are, are gifted at discipling and mentoring and coaching others. If discipleship feels a little bit too exalted to you, use the word coaching. You know, what coaching means is somebody with a little bit more experience helps somebody with a little bit less experience find their way spiritually in Christ. And here's what I'm finding about spiritual mentoring and coaching and discipleship. So much of it is just being present with people, just being present. You think of the number of people today who are trying to follow Christ and they're lonely. And they say to themselves, I'm the only person who's dealing with this particular sin. Is that true? No. But they're lonely. I'm the only person who struggles with these doubts. I'm the only person who's had this really traumatic experience. I'm the only person. And if I were were to ever share this with anybody, I would feel terrible that they knew what I had done. And then what happens is that they do find a mentor, a coach, a disciple maker, and they begin to gently share some of those things. And that coach, mentor, disciple maker says, I went through that same thing. Here's what happened to me. And here's how God ministered his healing to me. And here are the scripture passages that God gave to me in the midst of that. And all of a sudden, the person who is afraid realizes, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. And I could live my Christian life more boldly, more confidently, because I'm in a community of people who are walking together in their brokenness toward the light. So my encouragement, my encouragement to you is find a worthy mentor or disciple maker who will actively coach and disciple you into a more robust relationship with Jesus Christ. Find that person. Don't be afraid to say, hey, would you consider discipling me? Would you consider mentoring me? I tell you, we have a growing collection of people in our church who are, who are doing this. We've got, got this on the women's side. We've got this on the men's side. 
Um, Lenora Heiser is doing a Every Woman a Disciple study on Mondays, um, and we have uh, men who meet on Wednesday mornings at 6.30. Uh, we've got a growing collection of people who are able and gifted and equipped to disciple. Choose it. Choose to be a disciple. So now we're going to transition toward communion, and uh, I want to I read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to invite you, when you feel ready, to come to the communion table. And I invite you to come thinking about your identity in Christ. That Jesus was your substitute. That's substitution. That Jesus paid the price for your eternal life. That's redemption. That the Father was totally satisfied. That's propitiation. And that you are now his friend. That's reconciliation. I want you to come to the communion table as you feel led, remembering that you are, you are a friend of the living God. a place streams of grace 